is Our American Stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between have recorded there. And our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit pay dirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we've got out of a theater, etc., etc. Uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so, consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought, and of course immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons, and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove, and he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and, uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of but who are you to tell her who to love? That's up to her. Yes, and the Lord above. You better move on. You better move on. After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, Uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, Played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, et cetera, et cetera, but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. 
After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie K. Doe and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is 
is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. You gotta remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times, and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here. I had more trouble when I went to L.A. or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world Now you find that you've been misused Talk to me, I'll do what you choose I want you to tell mama This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Rick Hall knew that he had a big, fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. Said, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two. Number one. 
Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seemed to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him, he didn't like. The songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shows, and there was just a listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances which was enormous and the energy and the scenario of that record it, to me is wonderful to this day the projection just something that comes that leaps out of a record I call it the sonority of the record that it's different from the rhythm it's not exactly the sound it's not the songs it's the gestalt it's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly and to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and love to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in... Um Muscle shows and these cats are these cats are really greasy. You're gonna love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in '66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording.
Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch. Uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time, and uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, here on Our American Story. American stories and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals and we were all laughing in the studio Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall who's that guy playing guitar on that track and he says oh some hippie kid living in the parking lot and that was Dwayne Allman folks in the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock and now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big big music town in this country here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. 
but there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them. Because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I, I, I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, 
of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, LA, Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at... Uh Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford, was seeing uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, hmm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu- in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, they'll listen to the demo, they'll write a chart out, and without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off, and then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound 
Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. Everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. And it's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live, and I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in, in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A., and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A., and the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles, I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section. Really, I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, <laughs> and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? 
And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where, you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I love. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know... You know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be, you know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want... Or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you the guitar player just plays very few notes. And that's one of the things I really love about it is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is if people hear a great song and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture you. We don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town. We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could and, and I did. And it has served me well but along with that I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. 
That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think the the muscle shows sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a, it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. I, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios for the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river, it's the space, it's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach... But they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small-town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artists, what a crazy idea. The musicians serving a song. 
If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music. The story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, the arts, history, sometimes even public policy. But for the most part, it's just stories you care about, stories we care about. And this next one, well, we're going to let Lauren tell the story herself. Lauren Masaros joins us now. She's a nurse at the University of San Francisco Medical Center, and also, well, late in life, discovered a love for horses. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And, you know, for anybody who's watching fires raging around the country, and particularly in California, and seeing the deadly images, this story is about Lauren's close encounter with some serious fires up near her home. And, uh, Lauren, talk about the fires and how quickly they came upon you uh, up there in Santa Rosa. Well, unfortunately, no one knew how fast these fires would spread. They were coming down the mountains behind our homes at about 70 miles an hour. So most of the people in my neighborhood just woke up by neighbors banging on their doors, and many houses were already on fire. It came very close very quickly. And unlike hurricanes, tornadoes, where people at least have some advance warning, you know, it's hard to get real advance warning when these things suddenly jolt up at you. So you really didn't know it was coming, did you, Lauren? We did not. Um, when I went to bed at 10 o'clock, I was able to, I smelled something burning, but sometimes people light their fireplaces. And we do have lots of fires up here, and but they never come down the hills. I mean, it literally crossed six lanes of traffic because it was moving so fast with the wind, which no one expected to happen. Now, a little digression here, you you know, you developed a love of horses a little bit late in life. You're a Jersey girl who migrated out to California. Talk about this, this passion. When did it happen? And talk about your home. Describe your home, your setting. And I think it would interest some folks who are from the Northeast. I originally grew up in New Jersey. The idea of having a horse on my property or our lush quarter acre would have been real, real odd to our neighbors at the minimum. Yeah. Well, I was first I was living in San Francisco and after about two really horrible rainy winters, I was getting very depressed in the rain and the fog. And a friend that I work with has had horses her whole life and said, you know, you need to do something, get yourself out. And I thought, well, horses work for her. So I started going to local stables. And after I decided how much I loved horses, I wanted to move and have a piece of property where I could have my horses with me which is why I ended up in Santa Rosa at about 60, I'm about 60 miles north of San Francisco. Oh, so you've moved a little bit out, but this is the life you wanted and the peace you were looking for and the connection to the, to, to the earth, I guess, 
in the end, Lauren, to be connected more to, to, to life on the ground. And so this, this life on the ground gets invaded by fires. And what's the first thought you think of in your property? Who, who, are, the, who are the people you're thinking of the most? And, and, and talk in particular about the three horses you have. Well, when my neighbor woke me up, that was my first thought. What do I do? And it was such a catastrophe. It was not like you could call 911. And that first night, we were unable to get out because the neighborhood was literally burning. And the street, there was one street to get out of my house. And that street was on fire. And even if I had had a horse trailer on the property, the roads were clogged with abandoned cars because people trying to escape their cars were catching on fire and they were running on foot. So we waited out that night and just moved the horses as far away from the fire as we could down to my neighbor's house and just hoped for the best during the night. And I got the horses out the next morning. And talk about how you got one of them out, because a, a picture prompted this uh, this call, Lauren, though we want to talk to you about more serious things. But it's a it's quite a picture. It's It's your pony in the back of a Honda Accord, and it's not a hatchback, Lauren. It's a, actually a sedan. <laughs> so talk about yeah. talk about how you managed to lure a pony and why you needed to choose the, the car as the best mode of transportation for a pony, which, by the way, we're not suggesting in normal day-to-day life. No, well, my friend Carol, who um, has the uh, certificate where she can go into devastated areas, so she was able to get to me. Um, there were several, there was many people that were calling me with big trailers willing to evacuate. And I asked them to please go to the ranches where there were more horses to evacuate that were literally still on fire that morning. So as my friend Carol was coming, I was thinking, well, she's got a two horse trailer and I have three horses. So she's been a horsewoman since I think before she could walk. So she got her trailer here. And the first thing we did was get the two mares into her trailer, and they went in so beautifully and so easily. And after we had them in and closed the trailer doors, we just looked at the mini horse and looked at the Honda and said, well, we have to get them out of here. So we just opened up the back doors of the Honda and held a carrot, and he walked right in. And lucky you, the, the horses saved all three are fine. And, you know, we can't go uh, much longer without mentioning that not, as, not all horses and animals fared as well. And all kinds of people, Lauren, risk their lives to save not just fellow human beings, but have risked their lives to save their animals, too. And we've seen the images, and, and we'll continue to as we see fires rage in the coming year and years. Talk about that as well and those images. Well, it's just to see the true human spirit come out at times where people, you know, literally were rushing back into the barns. I have friends who had their, their horses stabled behind us and they were able to get, if they hadn't gotten to the, to the fire in time, the horses were in the stables and the stables had burnt down and they kind of rode through the fire with the firemen and got those horses out of the stables into the pastures and they saved at least 30 horses. Unfortunately, some horses did die but these people risk their lives, and as we're seeing in Southern California, people running into burning stables to get their horses out. Not only horses, their dogs and their cats and anything, you know, any other living thing that was there for them to save. And we've been listening to Lauren Massaros, and what a good story. And that's what we do here every day on Our American Stories. Tell the good, talk about the cooperation that happens out there in America each and every day. 
and just the humanity uh, displayed here in danger, in harm's way. People came out not just to save fellow human beings, but four-legged friends as well. And that picture of a pony in a Honda, well, that says it all. And Lauren Masaros' story, so many people suffering from natural disasters in this country, but also experiencing the humanity of this country, the soul of America. Lauren Masaros' story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our On Leadership series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone named David Wilson, whom you likely don't know, but you'll be glad you met him. I was literally born with a golden spoon in my mouth. I was born in Iowa on a farm, the oldest of five kids. My dad worked at John Deere Waterloo Tractor Works. My mother sold Stanley Home Products on a party plan. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity that we didn't have anything. <laughs> you know, we, did, we didn't have anything. Whatever we wanted, we had to earn. It was a terrific lesson that sadly, it's difficult to pass on to your children when you become successful because you realize you don't want your children to have to sort of grow up the way you did until you figure out that the way you grew up was pretty damn special. So uh, Iowa was a great place to be from. It, it's a place where you, you learn by example that you have to plant in the spring if you're going to reap in the fall. And you don't really see the rewards of plowing and disking and planting and praying for rain until six months later when you pick the corn or, or harvest the wheat or the soybeans. So it's a terrific place to grow up. Nature sort of shows you that you have to work to be successful. And even you, you can't see the goal. You have it in your mind. But the goal is to have a good harvest, but you have to do a lot of things to prepare for it and then hope that it comes to you in the end. As a youngster, I had the opportunity to earn money in four seasons. You could rake leaves in the fall and shovel snow in the winter, uh, rake leaves in the spring and mow grass in the summer. At that time, most women didn't work, but the man didn't. If he couldn't get out of his driveway, I mean, the snow overnight, you know, I used to pray for snow. It'd be two, three, four feet of snow in northeastern Iowa. And so you had to get up at five o'clock in the morning when it was still dark and go knock on doors because the guy couldn't go to work if he couldn't get his car out of the garage. True. But who wants someone knocking on their door at 5 a.m.? A guy who's got to be work at seven o'clock. That's who. Yeah, a guy. A guy who wants to be work at seven o'clock is happy to have somebody. Are you going to shovel your snow? No, I will. Okay. The best part of that was is it really taught me a lot about business. First of all, I had to go knock on the door. You know, can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? How much? A dollar? No. I'll give you fifty cents. Okay. So you had to ask for the order. Yeah. Then you had to negotiate the price. Then you had to perform, and then then you went to school. <laughs> you know, then it was you know, and then it was eight o'clock in the morning. You had to get it done before school started, 
and then you come back after school and try to collect your 50 cents, well, Walt's not home yet. <laughs> okay, well, I know, he, but he got to work because I shoveled his driveway this morning. Okay, well, when he comes home at 7 o'clock, I'll make sure he puts out the 50 cents for you. And then on night and weekends, the five kids would farm. We, had, we farmed, and we had uh, cattle, horses, and we grew corn. So it was a good seven-day-a-week job, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you don't know any better, you think that's how kids grow up, and pretty much everybody in northeastern Iowa, that's how they were growing up. When I went to college, I had to pay my own way through college. My mother paid for room, board, and books for the first semester and said, if you like it, you'll figure out how to, how to finish. And I did. I worked initially at a Montgomery Ward store selling shoes nights and weekends. And then I worked in a manufacturing plant in a factory second shift. I mean, a full 40-hour week from 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock. Then uh, an earthen dam broke and flooded that factory, put five feet of water in it, and they laid off six, 700 people. Everybody lost their job. And so I looked in the paper the next day, and there was an opening at a car dealership, a nighttime job at a car dealership. The job description was go pick up telephone company vans. A 40 Conline van was the first van there ever was. This was in uh, 1968, and a job entailed going to the telephone company, picking up a van, driving to the dealership, changing the oil, changing the filter, lubing the car, the grease zerks, washing it inside, washing it outside, and that paid $5. Now, the minimum wage was $1.35, and I could do one an hour. So I was making triple minimum wage, working four hours a night, making 20 bucks, 100 bucks a week. I mean, that was, that was actually good pay for a college student in 1968. So <clears throat> one day in my haste, I ran the car up on the lift, I drained the oil, took the plug out of the pan, set it down, washed it inside, washed it outside, and the last thing I did was change the filter and then put five quarts of oil in it. I did that, drove it back to the telephone company, Well, I never put the plug back in the pan. So the next day, the guy gets in the van, ruins the engine. Uh, it's obvious what the problem was. There was no, <laughs> all the oil ran out. $285 for the engine at that time for a used one. And I had mechanic friends by that point who said they did the work for free. So I told the dealer, take half my pay. And after about two weeks, I said, I, I can't live on half my pay. I can't live on 50 bucks a week till that engine's paid for. So let me stand around that coffee machine and smoke cigarettes and sell cars because you're open seven days a week. And I'm, I'm sure I can do that just as well as those guys. And he said, I mean, come on, you're 20 years old. You can't sell cars. I said, you're, and you're a full-time college student. I said, let, let me do it. Uh, give me a chance. And so he did. And uh, I was a top salesman the very first month. The very first month, and from and then on, I was a top salesman. But uh, my senior year in college, 1970, I made $29,010 selling cars, and I could have got a job teaching high school English and history for $5,950. So I, th I think sales is probably going to be it for me. I think I got to be a good salesman because of my upbringing and because of my education. I have a degree in religion and philosophy. I've been interested in religion. I understand how ethics works, morality works. I've always done things for the long run, ethically, morally, truthfully, and I've seen people do it the other way. Short timers are short timers. It's just if you, anything worthwhile takes time. And if you start taking shortcuts and stretching the truth, it's not going to end up well for you. So I think the biggest part of my success is just doing, trying to do business in an honest, ethical, moral way because I want to do it for the long run. You know, somebody said, you want to live a good life. That way, when you look back on it, as you get closer to the end, 
you can look back and enjoy it again. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you if you if you've messed up for the last fifty years, what's what are you looking forward? You know, you better be looking forward because there's not much to look back on, right? That's happy for you. And how about that dealership owner, that guy who was willing to give this young kid who screwed up a shot at sales? Well, he turned out to be more than a boss to David. And that, that was actually my second mentor, a guy named Dick Gray. He taught me about the power of positive thinking. I hadn't sold cars maybe only six months, and he could see I was something. He took me under his wing, made me get the school calendar to figure out when are you going to graduate, when are you going to graduate. Well, I took 12 hours in the spring, 12 hours in the fall, and eight hours in the summer, so I was going to school year-round. He says, find out, you know, it's got to be August of 1970, right? He says, put that, put that on your mirror in lipstick. August 1970, you're going to be a college graduate. Look at it every day, and I did, and son of a gun, August of 1970, I graduated from college. So he just made me believe in, believe in myself. The greatest saying uh, Douglas Edwards, whatever your mind can conceive and believe, you will achieve. You will achieve. So he told me about brain waves and how your, your alpha, beta, delta, and gamma, how your brain... You know, the alpha part of your brain is what's talking to you right now, but the beta part of my brain is I'm already thinking about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow, but even when I'm having this conversation, the, the delta part of your brain is a part that you can program, that makes you, and then the gamma part is what just keeps our hearts and lungs working, you know, we don't, we don't think about. But he taught me that the alpha, beta, the delta the, is, is your subconscious, and that you use your conscious mind to program your subconscious mind so if, if you are just so certain that you're going to graduate from college in August of 1970, your conscious mind won't let you do anything that would preclude that from happening. And, you know, maybe it's mumbo jumbo, but it's, it's worked for me my whole life. It's worked for me. If I, if I wanted something, and I, you know, and I, you have to set a date. Otherwise, it's just a, you know, a wish or a dream. But a goal is something that has a date certain to it. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to achieve this, or I'm going to have that, or I'm going to be somewhere when, you know. And he thought the luckiest guy on the face of the earth was a captain of an ocean-going vessel because he could leave New York at 8 o'clock on Monday morning and he's going to La Havre, France. And he's got to be there at noon on Sunday. Now that's six and a half days he's crossing the ocean and all he can see is water, you know. But he's got a plan. He knows that if he's here on Monday and here on Tuesday and here on Wednesday, this this spot, you know, on Thursday, all he can see is water, but sure as heck, Sunday morning the sun comes up and there on the horizon is La Harve and setting a goal, doing each step along the way to get there and son of a gun, when the time's up, there you are. In contrast to this, David's plan for when he graduated college fell apart right before his very eyes. And when we come back, more on David Wilson's story, our On Leadership segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're doing everything in their power to make small businesses grow into big ones. When we continue, David Wilson's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email and we'll send you our five best stories of the week. You can listen to them or you can read them. We'll have them in transcript form. And now we continue with the story of an Iowa farm boy named David Wilson who became the number one salesman at a car dealership all the while in college. I graduated from college in Iowa in 1970, and a friend of mine, a guy named John Lancaster, and I were fraternity brothers at the University of Northern Iowa, and he was a car salesman, and I was a car salesman. We were going to open our own dealership. We were going to buy an Oldsmobile Datsun GMC dealership in Marshalltown, Iowa, We both had homes. We sold our homes to move to Marshalltown and get the money for the down payment on the dealership, and the deal blew up. And I moved to Phoenix. I thought I would get out of the car business or do something different. But he didn't have a clue what he was going to do in Phoenix. I didn't really know. I had a uh, a Mercury that I drove out there, dragging a U-Haul trailer. And when I got to Scottsdale, I'd never been there before, never been to Arizona. And the rear end was starting to make a noise. So I said, I got to take that to the dealership. So I, I unhooked the U-Haul trailer in the Holiday Inn parking lot where I was staying. And I knew it was on Camelback Road. And I said, this is a big city. I'm a farm boy. So I'm driving down the Camelback Road in Phoenix. I find the Lincoln Mercury dealership. I pull in there, go to the service department. And a guy comes out and says, see, I can help you. I said, yeah, my rear end's making you know, noise. He drives around blocks. I think you got U-joint or rear ends out. I said, well, I've just been working with Lincoln Mercury. I'm sure it's under warranty right now. I said, well, look at that big, that rental trailer hitch you got on the back of the bumper. That's probably what did it. He said, that won't be under warranty. I said, oh, come on, you're kidding. He said, no, I'm sure. we got a little warranty problem here. I don't think I can get the Ford Motor Company to pay for that. I said, employees get a discount? He said, why, do you work here? I said, not yet. <laughs> I left the car sitting in the drive. I walked over to the sales office and had a job there that afternoon as a salesman. Five years later, I owned the place. Five years later, I became the general manager and 25% partner there. And it would be this experience as a minority partner that taught him how to act as a majority partner. My partner there, the guy that owned 75%. I don't want to say, be disparaging, but he had a son that was only five, six years younger than me. I was never going to get the other 25% uh, or other 75%. So I guess he, I was never going to end up being the dealer, which is a good thing and a bad thing for me. Bad thing, I'd been there 10 years. I thought it was my career. Felt like my life was over to leave, but I knew I was never going to be satisfied being the junior partner. And, and, and he treated me like a junior partner. So on the one hand, I didn't like it. On the other hand, it was a great way for me to learn when you're the majority partner how do you treat the junior partner okay he didn't consider that there was never any votes because it was 75 25 so i learned to treat my 25 percent partners like they own 75 okay it's their business they're once they're there five or six or seven days a week they're responsible i trust them there's no votes now either you know that i let them they make the decisions and this decision to let other people make decisions can be hard for the founders of companies. Many dealers don't even have partners. They own it all, reap it all, and control it all. But David, a guy who empowers his junior partners who run the dealership so much so that in one case, he refused to visit his store for three years, knows that this seemingly counterintuitive decision is what's decided his success. 
We've been up to 20 dealerships and we had a junior partner in every one. I'm a 25% owner. They earned their 25% out of sweat equity, okay? I would give them 10% of the stock and they would get an annual dividend of 10%. With that, they could buy five more percent. And then with that 15% dividend, they could buy five more percent. And if they won the lottery, I didn't let them write a check for the 25%. I wanted to see how they acted, how they matured, how they grew into being a partner. We have a saying in our business, you can get dealeritis. So if a guy, you give him 10% and all of a sudden he joins two country clubs and is going here and going there, you know, I, I don't need uh, an investor. I need someone who's going to run that particular dealership. So over a five-year period, they can earn 25%. And anytime during that five years, if it isn't working out, I just write them a check for what they paid, even though they bought it out of the profits. So it's helped me attract good people and retain really the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Our dealerships are wildly successful, high volume. We have beautiful facilities everywhere we are. We're in terrific markets, Southern California, Las Vegas, Nevada, Scottsdale, Arizona, and we have two dealerships in Mexico. So by bringing along good people, training them, you can only really, they call them a dealership. And I think it is like a ship in that there's gotta be a captain and two captains sink a ship. So I let these guys run with the ball. They've worked with me for a long time. I don't buy a company and advertise for a partner, all right? We grow our people. And when we have people that are ready, then I go out and try to find another opportunity, buy a dealership or, or start a new one somewhere and promote people from within. And that kind of drags everybody out because when we open a store or buy a new store, we might take a sales manager from one store to become the general manager. And then that, that sales manager, the guy who was behind him, gets to move up to sales manager of, of the old store. And a guy who was the assistant service manager somewhere becomes the service manager. It's showing by example that we're not kidding. We don't, you, you come to work for our company, do a good job, we're gonna promote you from within and you get a chance to be, have a really successful life. The ladder of opportunity is so strong at Wilson Automotive Group that it's enabled them not to do something that almost everyone has to do. We have never advertised for an employee. We don't advertise for employees. People want to work for our company. We've built a great culture from the inside out. I was taught you, you want to hire fathers or sons or husbands and wives because of conflicts. We have a lot of second and third generation people working for us. Father and son mechanics working side by side. Mother and daughter working in the business offices. Four or five brothers at some dealerships. In addition to the opportunity to work with your family and rise up within the company, this one other thing might have a little something to do with not having to advertise for people. We overpay, but we overexpect. So how can you overpay and be successful? Right? Well, you get five men to do seven men's job or six people to do eight people's job. Then you can pay them 10 or 15% more each and it still leaves 10 or 15% more for the business. And I'd rather pay overtime for good people than have part-timers coming and going and a lot of turnover. People have to have a living wage. And in California, it's, ex it's especially difficult to have a living wage here. So we don't, we don't pay anybody minimum wage, even starting people. We pay about 20% more than minimum wage just to start. And we want all of our employees to make 20 or 30% more than the average person in some other dealership. If you got rent to pay and groceries to buy, you might have to be stealing the spare tire out of cars to sell it 
or the batteries or steal, you know, if you try to steal people's labor, they're going to have to steal something from you to, to pay their rent, their light utilities, their kids' school clothes. So we want our employees not thinking about they're not going to have enough food to eat or be able to pay their rent. These people are better because on their day off, they're not looking for another job. They're going to the beach or taking their kids shopping or having a fun day or going on vacation. They're not out applying for another job. They show up early because they have a job they don't want to lose. They go home late because they have a job they don't want to lose. So they become more productive, more effective. So we have no turnover and nobody quits because it's very hard to get in. And they actually, they're earning the extra 20% we're paying them and we're saving on employee costs. So we're very, very fortunate that we've been able to attract that's probably, I believe, my biggest skill. I wasn't the world's greatest car salesman. I was good at it. I was a pretty good sales manager, pretty good finance manager, pretty good used car manager. But I think, I think my biggest skill is being able to recognize good people, hire them, train them, retain them, motivate them, compensate them, make them better than what they thought they could be. And when we come back, the final segment with David Wilson, and I know what you're thinking. What a guy. And my goodness, we need to hear from guys who run and own businesses like this so much more of. We need to hear from them. We need to hear about their stories because this is what makes American business hum, folks. People like David Wilson. When we come back, more of David's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of this remarkable feature in our On Leadership series which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, working hard to turn small businesses into big ones with policy that makes it easier for those small business owners to grow. And we're talking with a guy named David Wilson, an Iowa farm boy who went on to build the 13th largest car dealership in the country with dealerships in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico, and employs over 2,000 people and produces more than $2 billion in annual sales. Let's continue with David. I saw other people, other managers and other dealers get jealous when some of their employees made a lot of money. Like, I gotta cut, I gotta cut their pay because they're making too much money. And I've always had the philosophy, they can't make too much because I'm getting the last dime, all right? <laughs> What a thought. Very rarely will someone decide to leave this awesome culture and go work somewhere else. But one person's story shows if you're going to do that, you ought to think long and hard about it. I don't begrudge anybody that leaves our company for a promotion. Okay, If they're a salesman ready to be a manager uh, or they're a manager and want to be the general sales manager, Great, but if we don't have an opening, then you know they want to move on, okay, but it doesn't happen very often. But we have a rule. If you leave, if you leave for a lateral job, we're not, goodbye. 
Goodbye. Because, because, well, we, we, we hire somebody to take your place, and now that guy's important to me, okay? Plus, it's, it's just downright offensive to leave for something that ain't better. Well, it is. It is. Well, it is. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't happen very often. That never happened. For, it doesn't happen for a long time. But, but it, that, this was 20 years ago. Okay? I didn't leave for, it was a lateral position because they promised him more. But, you know, he wasn't smart to realize that, that they were not telling him the truth either. And after about 90 days, he wanted to come back. Well, no, 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 you can come back and start as a salesman again. So, and he did and ended up uh, being, being a, a partner. So, but that's an example to everybody else. If you leave, guess what's going to happen? You're going to come back as, not where you were, but back at the bottom of the line. But again, we're not holding any grudges. If you're a sharp guy, got some skill and talent and ability, honest and ethical, you, you're right back on the, on the food line. And, you know, if we can promote you, we're going to promote you. And see if you'll turn out to be a leader. I mean, the Army doesn't get their generals from Harvard. They, they'd learn by example. Every general started as, as a private, you know, and, and then became, you know, worked his way up the ranks, and that's, that's, how you, that's how you become a leader. Our philosophy of leadership is leadership by example. You can't manage an army into battle. Nobody's going to follow a manager. People don't come in early or go home late for a manager. They don't miss their kid's softball game or, or be late for something. For a leader, they'll die. They'll lay down. You can't manage an army into battle, but you can lead one. You can lead one into battle. And thankfully, over my career, I've had many mentors and leaders who taught me how to lead. And I, I can see now that that's the only way to be successful in front of it is you have to be a leader. Managers have titles, okay? Managers have titles. And I've had employees, hey, I want to be the sales manager. I want to be the general manager. Okay, I could give you that title tomorrow, but until the person behind you and everybody in that department, when, when they start coming to you and ask you, hey, uh, we just had a power failure, what should we do now? Well, are the lights off across the street or is it just our building or where? So when the employees come to you and ask and they have a problem, they're already starting to recognize you as the leader. And I'm so proud of the people that I have as partners now. I'll, I'll pull in a place and I'll see them walking across the lot and they're picking up a, an empty coffee cup or an empty water bottle or a cigarette butt. They're picking it up because that, that's, they don't have to say anything. You just, everybody sees that sooner or later. If their office is clean, everybody's office is going to be clean. If the place is neat, the whole place is going to be neat. If they take care of their workstation, everybody's going to take care of their workstation. So you lead by example. People recognize your example, and then ultimately you just kind of become a leader. Their over 2,000 employees have recognized David as their leader. And in a very literal way, too, beginning in the year 1988. It originally started, I had a Ferrari Testarossa. And for Christmas, my employees, well, I only had one dealership, my employees gave me a crystal Ferrari Testarossa. And I said, you know what, as much as I appreciate it, I don't need that. You know, it looks like it's a big paperweight on my desk, it's heavy, you know, and it was a lot of money, it's like $5,000. You know, I wish we'd have just given that to charity. And so my secretary, who's been with me for 30 years or more now, said, uh, right, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start a scholarship in your name. So it was like 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks. Well, that's when we only had 100 employees. Well, now it's grown to, there's a way over a million dollars in that scholarship. And in one recent year, their employees collectively gave over $500,000 
of their own money by their free will to help other Americans get to where they are and to honor their boss. What other company does this? And it goes to post-secondary education for kids that don't have parents. We reserve it for trade and technical schools. You know, there's enough lawyers. These are, these are kids that, that, you know, a job is going to be good for them, but a career, mechanics make a lot of money, welders, plumbers, pipe fitters. So we want to invest in people who want to go to the trade and technical school and actually learn a trade, you know? And there's actually a high demand for workers in the trades. In David's automotive industry, there are 25,000 car technician positions open right now, sitting empty, ready for the taking. It's a great job. And in Southern California, in seven or eight years, you could go to medical school and about eight years be a doctor and have $500,000 of student debt and make 120 grand a year your first year. In 10 years of being a technician, if you start at the bottom and are eight grade tech, you can make 120,000 bucks a year and with no, with no student debt. Now, the doctor might make more in his lifetime, but $110,000 a month is a pretty good job in California. And it's not just his employees who are giving. I've always been philanthropic. You know, I had a good friend, Chichi Rodriguez, uh, the golf pro, who told me a long time ago, he says, Dave, uh, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. Whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, if you're waiting till you have a lot so you can give some away, you're never going to have enough, right? So yeah, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. So I learned early in life to care for other people, but that's about as succinctly put philosophy as I can think. But when I was younger, I used to donate my time because I didn't, didn't have money. I mean, I was involved with a lot of charities, Boys and Girls Club, Boy Scouts. And as I became more successful, I started donating more money and less time. Now that I'm older, I get a lot more satisfaction out of donating time again. Now I'm still giving a lot of money, but I deliver Meals on Wheels here, a substitute driver in, in Laguna Beach because I live here, I'm close, I pick up the food at the hospital and if they call me, hey, somebody can't make it today or make it next week, you know, okay, I, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody said, well, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you get out of delivering Meals on Wheels to old people? I said, well, I'll give you an example. About five years ago, when I was only 65, I'm running to the door in my shorts and tennis shoes, and I get knock on the door, and the lady's on her handheld portable phone and sitting in her recliner and looking through the screen door, and uh, I can hear she's talking on the phone, and I ring the doorbell and says, Hey, lunch is here. And she's, Oh, 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 I can hear her talking to this lady. Oh, oh, that nice young college boy is here with my lunch, honey. Um, but here's my lunch. I got to go. And <laughs> she hangs up. Her, I'm 65 years old. I still got blonde hair, but she's, That nice young college boy is here with my lunch. <laughs> she, she's like 90. It's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative, right? All relative. So, yeah, that, you know, that was a good day for me right there. I get more satisfaction out of my doing that than writing a check for. 100,000 bucks or a million bucks now, so which we still do. And what a voice, what a story. A farm boy from Iowa, born, as he said, with a golden spoon because he, well, he didn't have anything but a work ethic and an appreciation for everything he ever earned. Earned success 
Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute writes a lot about that and that it brings happiness in the end. And you can hear it, a good life, a life well-lived, and how we do it. Well, David Wilson's teaching us right there. Our On Leadership series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. We've had Brad Anderson, former CEO of Best Buy, Ed Renzi, who went from making 85 cents an hour and working 100 hours a week at McDonald's to becoming McDonald's CEO. Ray Dalio, Faye Vincent, Dina Dwyer Owens, Bear Bryant's story, and Slombardi's too are on leadership series here on Our American Stories. And today it was David Wilson's story. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And by the way, just give us your email and we'll send you our five best stories each week. You can listen to them or you can read them. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. By the way, if you have a story about someone you know, a great leader, a civic leader, a faith leader, a sports leader, send your story ideas to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.